KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Tech jobs lead the way in boosting San Diego's employment rate. Compared to where it's been the last two years, roughly, this is pretty good news for San Diego County. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's getting harder for preschools to find childcare staff. Considering I'm doing the job of two teachers right now at minimum wage, it's really discouraging. A new report finds too many domestic abusers still have their guns. And Moxie Theater unveils a play that's friendly to your senses. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Even in the face of the Omicron surge, the San Diego County unemployment rate continues to decrease. San Diego ended the year with a 4.2% unemployment rate. That's the lowest rate since the pandemic. But not all industries are equal in the amount of job growth. High-end tech and life sciences employment is booming, while jobs in the real estate industry are down. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune business reporter Philip Molnar. Phil, welcome back to the show. Yeah, great to be here, Maureen. Thank you. Can you give us an idea of how a 4.2 unemployment rate in December stacks up against what the rates have been through the pandemic? Yeah, so that is very low compared to what we've seen throughout the pandemic. It hit a high of 15.9% in April 2020, but it took a really long time to basically get back down to where we are. Now, before the pandemic, in the months leading up to it, it was crazy. Unemployment rate was lower than 3%. So 4.2%, you know, if there was no pandemic and you just looked at it, you'd say, oh man, things are up kind of high. But compared to where it's been the last two years, roughly, this is pretty good news for business analysts and economic analysts for San Diego County. And with that 4.2 unemployment rate, are we doing better or the same as most of California and the country? Actually, we're doing better than the California average of 5%. So that's pretty good. But the national average is 3.7%, a little bit lower than what we're at right now. You know, it's kind of funny. Earlier in the pandemic, especially when things started opening up, everyone kind of said California is going to take longer to recover because we had much stricter lockdown measures in order to stop the spread of COVID-19. However, I'm hearing different things now. No one's really quite sure why California is taking a little bit while to recover compared to the rest of the nation. I mean, the prevailing wisdom does seem to be that the lockdown measures were part of the factor. So we'll have to wait and see. What industries in San Diego are doing the most hiring? This one was a little shocking, especially for December, where it's not usually a big hiring month. But the high-paying professional and business services sector is the one hiring the most right now, which is kind of fascinating because it's our highest paying jobs in scientific research, in technology, biotech, architecture. So that's where we saw the biggest jump, which was pretty good if you're an economic analyst. Do we know why that would be? 
Throughout the pandemic, there's been tons of money pouring into venture capital. We saw San Diego startups in 2021 get $9.6 billion for a variety of companies in life science, technology. So a lot of those industries, investors just poured a lot of money into them, especially, you know, biotech here in San Diego, lots of research surrounding pandemic and all this kind of stuff. So they're kind of flush with cash at the moment. So that sort of translates into hiring. And that's what we really saw about 4,100 jobs were added in December in professional and business services. So those jobs can pay a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. You have a list of them in your article, and we're talking six figures, aren't we? Yeah. You know, the funny thing is through the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I only have 2020 numbers right now, but you can imagine that they've gone up. For instance, if you're, you know, like a computer and information systems manager, the entry level in 2020 was about $99,000 a year. But if you're some physical scientist that might work in some sort of biotech field, your annual salary is going to be around 120,000 and starting wage back then was around 82,000. I really suspect that it's, it's getting up for entry level in that position probably nearing 100,000. And of course, there's a lot of other things like if you're a super high paid biotech person, say you're a natural science manager, they were making in 2020 183,000 a year. So pretty significant wages in those, those areas. Now on the flip side, a number of sectors actually lost jobs in December. Is that because of the surge in the virus? You know, the weird thing about that is it probably was affected in some way, but some of them I wouldn't have expected, such as like retail, leisure, hospitality. A lot of times they have a big jump in hiring around December. So I'm not quite sure exactly the the exact reason why we saw a dip in those industries. I know a lot of them are struggling, especially construction to find workers. So that could be part of the factor too. But there, there just seems to be a lot of things going on with you know supply chain waiting for goods to come in so they can actually work on stuff. And you know tourism is still suffering. There was a ton of things canceled because of the latest surge. So that's another factor as well. Overall, though, on an annual basis, tourism in San Diego did quite a lot of hiring. I mean, it rebounded pretty well. Can you remind us what kind of jobs the tourism industry includes? Anything from like casinos to working at a hotel and sort of in the leisure and hospitality sector, we kind of roll it all into one with restaurants. So it's all that type of work right there that sort of runs into it. And of course, that includes bars as well, bartenders, that sort of thing. So if we look at a year over year basis in December, the leisure and hospitality, they added about 37,600 workers. So if you looked at just year over year, you'd be like, wow, they did great, you know, but um, they're still recovering from the pandemic. And although home prices are incredibly high, as as you've been reporting through the year, a lot of real estate related jobs seem to be suffering. Yeah, I was surprised by that. I saw a dip in financial services hiring and I was thinking to myself, okay, well, there seems to be a lot of work in finances, but then I kind of forgot that real estate is included under that that category. That includes a ton of realtors. And the interesting thing that's going on in that industry right now is you have these record-breaking sales, big profits, but the biggest thing is we have very, very few homes for sale. At one point in December, a weekly estimate was about 1,700 homes for sale in a county of more more than 3 million people. So one way to look at that is real estate agents don't have as much to do. Another thing is there's a lot of jobs tied to real estate, such as mortgage loan originators, all sorts of stuff like that. If there aren't a lot of homes for sale, that gives a lot of people a lot of free time 
who don't have anything to do, you know, so that are tied to that industry. Does having an employment boom in jobs that pay $100,000 or more, does that help our overall economy in San Diego? I talked to Alan Jin over at the University of San Diego, and he says yes, because if you have those people that have those high paying jobs, they are putting money back into the economy. They're going to that restaurant you work at with poor wages and they're paying for it, or say they're subscribing to your newspaper for your lower paid reporters, something like that, you know? So they're putting money into the community and it might be a tough pill to swallow if you're in the construction industry and seeing someone's making like triple what you're making, but you know, it's not like they're like just independently wealthy people just moving to San Diego to sit around on the coast or something. They are part of the economy. They're out there every day. They're maybe getting lunch on their lunch breaks if they're working back in the office, all those kind of things sort of filter out through the economy. Okay, then I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune business reporter, Philip Molnar. And Phil, thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much. Even before COVID, it was difficult to hire childcare staff because the positions are undervalued and poorly paid. Now, it's nearly impossible. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser looks at what's causing a childcare staffing crisis in the region. In May 2021, Allie had just graduated from SDSU with a degree in child and family development and went looking for her first job. She was hired immediately by a local preschool. This is the first and only job I applied to, and it ended up working out. But her college education did little to prepare her for what she ended up walking into. So technically, I would have a co-teacher, and we would split up the children six and six. But with where I'm at right now, I am keeping all 12 kids together. Six months into the job, Allie and her classroom of toddlers are left with a rotating cast of substitute teachers. Allie doesn't want to reveal her full name or the name of her school to protect her job. We put um, name tags on the children so that we can help the subs identify them and they can actually refer to them by their name. Plus, sometimes the subs themselves call in sick or just don't show up. I've noticed how attached they are to me. And when other subs come in, it's kind of like stranger danger. Preschools and childcare centers everywhere are dealing with a massive staffing shortage. On job search websites, there are more than 200 local childcare openings, some even offering signing bonuses. Providers told KPBS they can't find qualified people to hire. The problem is much worse than the general labor shortage trend. Childcare providers have to compete with retailers and restaurants for workers, but those other sectors can raise starting wages. Plus, people are still worried about catching COVID from unvaccinated toddlers. We're asking so much for, you know, $12 an hour when you could be making more at McDonald's. Caitlin McLean is with the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at UC Berkeley. If we want to make sure that families have access to these services, we have to make sure that this is a good job that people want to do. And we have not been doing that. On average, California preschool teachers make less than half of what kindergarten teachers make. And more than a third of childcare workers live below the federal poverty line. 
Raising pay for these workers might seem like an easy solution, but there's a domino effect. First off, state regulations require childcare centers to have one teacher for every four infants and one for every six toddlers, which means a lot of staff. So if they pay more, they'd have no choice but to raise rates for parents, which many can't afford. There, there's no way that I can um, continue to ask parents to pay out of pocket um, at a higher weekly rate than I already do. I'm already within market rate. Holly Weber owns Magic Hour Preschool in Mira Mesa. It's just running a fine line between parents choosing to not even go back to work because their child care expenses are so exorbitant. People, of course, are going to apply to jobs where you aren't being recognized. Like Ali, Brianna Mendoza also recently graduated from SDSU with an early childhood education degree. But she has no interest in working at a preschool. She instead is looking at jobs where she would work one-on-one -on -one with children in crisis, which would pay $21 to $22 an hour. I mean, you are constantly like running. I'm telling you, like I would be sweating in the classrooms, like whether I was changing diapers, carrying babies, feeding them, sweeping, like it wasn't just childcare in there. It was like sweeping, like housework. Meanwhile, Allie, who is solo teaching at a local preschool, is trying to hold on, but isn't sure how long she wants to continue. Considering I'm doing the job of two teachers right now at minimum wage, it's really discouraging. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. And Claire, welcome. Thank you. Now, the impact of the staffing shortages is apparently making preschool work much more difficult. But what is it doing to the preschools themselves? I mean, are the schools turning away new kids? Or are some closing up entirely? Yes, uh, definitely to both. Um, you know, there's been a number of schools that have had to close during the pandemic. And then something that I'm hearing a lot now is that they would like to expand. They'd like to be able to have more classrooms and help more kids, uh, take in more kids. And they just can't because they can't hire enough staff to fill those classrooms. So definitely a problem of uh, lack of access for more kids who are wanting to go back to preschools right now. It sounds like even before the pandemic, the entire preschool sector existed by underpaying teachers. And now that's just not working anymore. Is that one way to look at it? Um, sort of. I mean, I think that, yes, preschool teachers have always been underpaid and under undervalued. Um, you know, it's a position that doesn't have as much respect necessarily from general society as as maybe like elementary school teachers. And, you know, there's just a, a massive labor shortage going on everywhere right now. And so it's kind of really built up the problem where if you're looking at maybe a retail job that can increase its pay for for employees and someone's looking to turn back return back to work they might go and and be more interested in in one of those jobs that pays more than a, a childcare job even if you know their passion or what they really enjoy is is childcare and what kind of an educational background do childcare staff need well, it varies. To do a family home-based child care, you don't need any educational background. You do need a number of 
uh, trainings and certificates like CPR training, things like that. Um, and then for uh, for more state funded programs, you might actually need a bachelor's degree. Some private preschools just prefer that in, in applicants. And then um, most preschool teachers need 12 college credits. So you do need at least some level of, um, of college classes to be able to teach at a preschool. Can you give us a little more background on why childcare facilities feel they can't raise staff salaries to a living wage? Right. So childcare facilities, they have a lot of government uh, oversight and, and restrictions, which makes sense. You know, you don't want people to be able to do whatever they want when you're dealing with babies and toddlers. And so one of the big ones is the ratio. So for babies, you need um, one teacher for every four babies. And then for slightly older kids, you need uh, one teacher for every, say, six toddlers. And that means you just need to have way more staff than you would in a kindergarten where you might have one teacher with 20 kids or something like that. And those staff, they cost a lot because they have benefits and um, pay. And so even if the pay is is lower, it's still very expensive for schools to have all of the staff. And so they operate on really thin profit margins. And so if they need to increase the pay of their staff, they're going to then need to increase the cost to families. But as you know, most families would tell you, daycare or preschools, childcare are already, you know, barely affordable. And so even if you raise their cost by say a hundred dollars a month, that might make it make a difference for for families where they're gonna say, you know what, I can't even afford to send my kid to to preschool. I'm going to stay home and take care of them anyways, or I'm going to, you know, find another solution or whatever it is. So the centers risk losing customers if they raise their prices even just a little bit. And when we speak about staff, isn't it mostly women who are underpaid in these childcare jobs? Yes, it's 94% of the industry uh, are women, and a lot of them are women of color. Now, what could be the ramifications on the workforce if child care costs go up? Right. So, I mean, I touched on this a little bit, but it, it could mean that there are far more, especially, you know, unfortunately, women who stay home um, to to take care of kids because they say, you know, we just can't afford this. And especially if you have maybe more than one kid, you're going to say, I'm just going to quit my job. I'm going to stay home because uh, the childcare cost is more expensive than than what I'm actually getting paid. Um, and so it would really, you know, continue to remove women from the workforce. Now, Claire, this is the first of a two-part report that you're doing on childcare staffing. What do you cover in tomorrow's report? Well, yeah, today kind of laid out what seems like a really impossible problem. Um, and tomorrow I'm going to look at some potential solutions. Unfortunately, the biggest one seems to depend on Congress doing something at the federal level, which um, may be difficult. Um, but then also looking at uh, there's talk of a local ballot measure that might address the problem and some state uh, state solutions as well. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser. Claire, thank you. Thank you so much.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. California has arguably the toughest gun control laws in the country, but it often struggles to enforce those laws. A new investigation from CalMatters, a nonprofit news outlet covering California policy and politics, finds that the state has failed to take guns away from thousands of domestic abusers. And those failures can have deadly consequences. Reporter Robert Lewis brings us the tragic story of one young mother in the Central Valley. And just a warning, this story has graphic descriptions of violence and could be upsetting. Kelly Gray's mom knew something was wrong. Callie had grown distant after meeting her husband. But when she did reach out, like in this 2018 voicemail, she tried to sound normal. Hey, Mama, I was giving you a call back and wanted to say hi and tell you that they were about to get on and get something to eat. But um, What Kelly's family didn't know was that her husband, Julio Gray, was keeping her a virtual prisoner in their Central Valley home, beating her regularly and threatening to kill her. Shortly after that voicemail, he allegedly drove her into the orchards outside town, kneeled her down, and put a gun to her head. When you close your eyes and you think about what she had to have gone through and, you know, home alone in the dark with him, that's... that's nasty. Jody Williams is Kelly's mom. She says they didn't learn just how bad it was until May 2020. That's when Kelly escaped with the couple's three young boys. She got an aunt to drive them to the Chowchilla Police Department early one morning when Julio was out of town for work. She wanted to take care of her kids, and she just wanted to be happy. She just wanted to be free. But if Callie thought the system would protect her, she was wrong. A Cal Matters investigation has found that too often California law enforcement and the courts fail to disarm domestic abusers. And two months after Callie Gray escaped... Her husband found her. On July 14, 2020, Julio Garay stalked Callie to a doctor's appointment in Madera and shot her when she came out as she was loading their kids into a minivan. The brazen daylight killing in a parking lot riveted the Central Valley. The suspect in the tragic shooting death of a Chowchilla woman is behind bars just after midnight. It was one of those salacious domestic violence murders that seems to hit the news every few months and then quickly fades from the public's memory. Julio Gray went on trial for murder in late September. Eric Dutemple was the prosecutor on the case. And I say you're going to get to see this execution because we actually have that incident on surveillance video. And I'm going to play that surveillance for, uh, for you right now. Can I get the lights, please? Over the course of three weeks, Dutemple laid out an overwhelming amount of evidence proving Julio killed his wife. So... How did something so horrific like this happen? Um, to get a full picture, to fully understand... There was trace DNA, 
fingerprints, the surveillance video. But the trial also revealed how much authorities knew before the killing. A Chowchilla police officer, Ernest Escalera, testified about Callie's May 2020 escape when she first contacted police. Did she say why she didn't report this incident sooner? She said she was scared and afraid of what uh, Julio might do if he found out or saw her there. So she waited on that specific day because he left to Monterey for work. Did Callie do or say anything after your interview with her? Yes, she um, was crying um, and stated that he was going to try and kill her. Julio was arrested the next day. He made bail and got out. The DA's office didn't file charges right away. The DA says they wanted law enforcement to keep investigating so they could bring the strongest possible case. Three weeks later, Callie met again with Chowchilla police, this time Detective Brian Bovey. Here's Prosecutor Du Temple questioning Bovey. Warning, it's pretty disturbing. And uh, what kind of objects did she say she was abused by? She mentioned a fire poker, and she described it in detail, having a triangular tip. It was made out of iron. Um, a metal bat, a chainsaw blade. And she also told him about being threatened with a gun, like that time Julio kneeled her down in the orchard, kids in the car. He um, ordered her to tell the kids that, say goodbye to the kids because he's going to kill her. Then he pulled the trigger. She knew that the trigger was pulled because she heard the metal-on-metal click. Despite that terrifying story, Julio still wasn't charged. There were no search warrants looking for his gun, no raid. Julio was out there, armed and looking for Callie. So a month after her escape, she turned to the Madera County Family Court and asked for a domestic violence restraining order. Such orders require abusers to surrender their firearms. And judges are empowered to hold special hearings and hold abusers in contempt if they don't comply. In her written request, Kelly included more than a dozen single-spaced pages of horror, including photos of bruises and stories about her husband's threats. Her mom, Jody Williams, read me part of Kelly's statement. I felt scared for our sons. I didn't know if his anger was still going to continue over and him take his madness out on our boys. I am still very scared that Julio will find me and kill me. He has always told me that a restraining order is not bulletproof and that he will find me and I believe him. There's no evidence those haunting words made any impact on the judge who considered her request. At a June 2020 hearing, the judge ordered Julio Gray to stay away from Kelly and the kids. But in spite of all her warnings about his gun, the judge asked just one question about firearms. Quote, Sir, there's no information that you have any guns or firearms or ammunition. Do you think you have any of these items? Julio's reply? No. In the end, it appears no authorities tried to disarm Julio Gray. A victim services worker, Esmeralda Duran, witnessed the result. She was with Callie the day of the killing, a month after Callie filed for a restraining order two months after she went to the police. I didn't see the truck at first because she was blocking my view, but when she moved, um, that's when I saw him running towards the van. Did you hear anything? 
she screamed out the word no. And after that, nothing was said. Did you hear any gunshots? Yes. The judge and Chowchilla police chief refused to talk to me about the case. Her death devastated Kelly's family, who hopes she'll be remembered as a sweet soul who died protecting her children. Again, Kelly's mom. She made me happy. I love being her mama. I love being her mama. The jury found Julio guilty. He was sentenced in November to life without parole. After the verdict, a different judge read aloud another standard court order, telling Julio if he had any guns, he'd need to surrender them. That's Robert Lewis with a story he reported for Cal Matters. It's such an upsetting story and, you know, really speaks to the incredible violence that can happen um, to women and, and in communities that are rural and isolated where there aren't organizations sometimes to help folks. And I'm sure, Robert, that it took a real emotional toll to report this story, too, and to hear the pain in these people's voices when you were talking to them. Callie's story really haunted me. Um, I just, I couldn't get it out of my head. I knew I wanted to, had to do something with it. Um, the horror she she described, the courage she had to to finally escape and to try to protect her kids and and the degree to which she, she told anyone in a position of authority um, what was happening and, and said exactly what he was going to do do to her and the fact that the system uh, didn't protect her, uh, it just, it was unconscionable. And uh, she and her family deserved better. Well, this is a story not just about one woman's case in Madera County, but it's really about our whole state. I mean, California is struggling to enforce its gun laws and to protect people from violence, especially family and domestic violence when it involves guns. So tell us, what is supposed to happen when a judge issues a restraining order against a gun owner? So in California, anyone who is the subject of a restraining order, even a temporary one, is supposed to surrender their firearms to law enforcement or sell them to a licensed dealer within 24 hours of being served. And that's because there's research showing domestic violence is much more likely to turn deadly when there's a gun present. Well, and as we've just heard in Callie Gray's case, that certainly didn't happen. Is that typical? Well, at the start of last year, there were 4,600 people the state justice department believed still owned a gun despite being the subject of a restraining order. But those were just registered guns. It doesn't count people like Julio Garay, who didn't have any weapons registered in his name when he shot his wife. The state court system, for its part, doesn't track how often victims like Callie inform the courts that their abuser is armed with a registered or unregistered gun and how often guns are formally surrendered in those cases. 
So could they be tracking this? I mean, is there a way that the courts could do that? Well, there is a checkbox on every restraining order request form. Uh, Does your abuser have a gun? Yes, no. In theory, courts could be looking at how often victims are alleging there's a gun and then seeing if proof of surrender is filed. Um, But they're not doing it. Robert, is this a new problem for us here in California, especially when it comes to restraining orders related to domestic violence? No. There have been numerous reports through the years warning that the firearm relinquishment provisions in domestic violence cases are not being enforced. Uh, Judges aren't making sure their orders are followed. Law enforcement is often not going out trying to confiscate the guns. I talked to Paul Durenberger, a retired Sacramento County prosecutor who is in charge of domestic violence cases. He says in California, it's too often just up to the abuser to decide whether to comply or not. And the honor system, it just doesn't work. We have to find a better way than, sir, uh, do you have any guns? And the person just says no. Wow. What could the courts or law enforcement be doing to better enforce it rather than just relying on that honor system? Well, by law, the family courts are supposed to be doing background checks on alleged abusers before issuing a restraining order, including a search for registered firearms. But half the courts don't even have access to the state firearm database. So sometimes judges don't know if an alleged abuser is armed. Wait, why don't they have access to that state firearm database? The state DOJ guards its data closely. Uh, The courts need to have the technical ability to access these systems while also keeping the information safe. Some courts either can't or haven't gone through the process to get access. And, you know, even when the courts do have evidence of a gun, judges are supposed to make sure the abusers file receipts, proving those guns were surrendered. And they can hold abusers in contempt if they don't, but many judges just don't do that. Um, As for law enforcement, agencies are often not in the loop, and in many places, they don't send anyone out to get these guns. Why isn't law enforcement following up, and and why aren't judges holding people in contempt if that's something they can do? Restraining orders are handled in the civil side of the court. Uh, Law enforcement often isn't involved. And even when agencies get an alert about one of these cases, it might be low on their priority list. Um, As for the courts, sometimes the judicial officers handling these cases might not have experience with these types of cases or might not recognize the danger. And when we're talking about unregistered guns, it can be hard for victims to provide enough proof for some judges to feel that they can act. Uh, I talked to Faith Whitmore, who runs an organization helping domestic violence survivors in Sacramento County. She acknowledged it can be hard to get evidence an abuser is armed, but she thinks the judges could be pressing harder. You know, if it is the law, and there's a reason there's a law, and there's, you know, the courts are the ones to enforce that, it seems that throwing up one's hands should not be the default uh, response. Are there any places in California that are handling this better that could be models for the rest of the state? There are some courts and certainly some individual judges who take these issues very seriously. I talked to a longtime judge in Mendocino County, Cindy Mayfield. She developed a clear, consistent policy for her court. Every case, they check for registered firearms and make a note of it in the file. If there's evidence of a gun, they hold a special hearing. Uh, It's a rural county, lots of gun owners. Judge Mayfield says the issue comes up often. 
I do kind of feel bad sometimes because they want them for wildlife or snakes or what have you on their ranches. But it's like, at this point, for the next three years, I'm sorry, you're just not going to have guns because it's not safe. Well, and it's not just rural counties where this is a problem. You actually found some evidence that the courts aren't following through in big counties and big cities, right? I heard from attorneys and advocates in L.A. and other counties around the state that they rarely see guns confiscated. And I did an experiment in Orange County. I looked at hundreds of restraining order requests filed there the same month that Callie Gray filed her request in Madera County. And I found two dozen cases where an allegedly armed abuser was ordered to surrender any weapons they had. But in only one of the cases was there evidence in the file that the subject of the order gave up a gun, and the courts just weren't following up. Is there any hope that this can be fixed in California? There was a bill that passed last year aimed at getting family court judges to use their power more to enforce orders. The bill is also supposed to make sure law enforcement is notified when an abuser doesn't surrender a gun. But parts of the law are voluntary, and some advocates are skeptical it'll change behavior. I do know uh, what happened to Kelly Gray really shook a lot of people. I've heard prosecutors, judges, and advocates are looking at this issue trying to figure out how they can make sure something like that doesn't happen again. I don't think any of us want something like this to ever happen again. There are women right now uh, living in fear, living in, in, in horror in situations like, like Callie dealt with, and we owe it to them and certainly owe it to the memory of Callie to, to make sure when they build up the courage to escape, they're protected. That was Cal Matters reporter Robert Lewis speaking with the California Report magazine's Sasha Coca. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Moxie Theater is staging the world premiere of Diana Bubano's play, Sapiens, next month. It focuses on neurodiversity and offers a sensory-friendly production. To explore what that means, KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with director-actor Vanessa Duran and inclusion specialist Samantha Jin. Vanessa, you are just about to direct Sapiens at Moxie Theater. And before we talk specifically about the play, remind people who Moxie Theater is and kind of what their mission statement is. Sure. So Moxie Theater is a theater that is run by women. And we put on plays that are created by women. Pretty much Moxie Theater's mission is to create more diverse and honest images of women in our culture by producing just works by female playwrights and giving special attentions to the plays that defy female stereotypes. 
And tell us a little bit about this play, Sapiens, and what it's about. Oh, what is what is it not about? <laughs> it's such an amazing play. It's about communication. It's about how we strive to uh, feel heard, to feel seen, how we socialize with each other. It's about understanding and compassion. There is so much in this play. Samantha, you are the inclusion specialist on this show. And one of the issues that it raises is this idea of neurodiversity. So what does that mean? Neurodiversity means anyone with a neurological difference who thinks differently in their brain and who is not defined as neurotypical. So that could be someone on the autism spectrum or someone who's dyslexic. Those are some examples of neurodiversity. And this play focuses on two actors who are on the autism spectrum. This play says that it's going to invite audiences to experience theater in a new way. So Vanessa, how are you going to package that for the audience? Well, we are making this play sensory sensitive, which means anyone can come and see it. So we're incorporating things like if there's a a sound that we think it's too jarring, there will be a cue light that will prompt someone to put on headphones if they need to, or, or walk out of the theater if they need to. We're creating a safe space for uh, people to walk out of the theater and take a breather if they need one. We've dialed back the, the lighting to make sure that it's there's no like strobe lights or anything that's too flashy. We've taken down a notch on our voices, so we're not screaming on stage. So there's so much. Um, there's a lot of learning experiences in the lobby when you first walk in. Audience members are allowed to leave the theater if they need some alone time. So just just be mindful of the, the needs that that need to be met in our audience members. And Samantha, I mentioned that you're the inclusion specialist. So what does that job entail? So um, I have been working with people with disabilities for the past 20 years. And I'm also an actor and a director and a writer. So I've been blessed to have both of those, those worlds in my journey. And so for the past 10 years, I've, I've been working with actors with disabilities and putting on sensory-friendly shows and doing a lot of neurodiverse programming. And so this time around at Moxie, they brought me in to make sure that the show is indeed sensory-friendly and accessible to those who may avoid going to the theater because of those loud noises and because maybe they, they need a sensory break to regulate. And so we're showing audience members like, what would that look like? And also, how can we be, how can we show compassion as audience members to those who may need to go have a break? That perhaps people who are neurodiverse in the past at the theater may have not felt like, oh, I'm safe to leave the theater right now. I don't want to be distracting. Or what if I make a noise right now? And so we're just really creating a welcoming space. And so my job is to to make sure that space is accessible to those and also to support some of the neurodiverse cast members to make sure they feel regulated and supported. And also to, I'm finding like, it's exciting to educate others, other designers, other people that are involved in the show of how would we modify our language to best support a neurodiverse actor in the process. 
So it's been really exciting. Now, part of this educational push also extends to the fact you are holding workshops after each of the plays. So what can audiences expect from that? Uh, a great partner in this show is the Autism Society. And I know that they're right now coming up with a, a list of what are those post-show discussions going to look like. And Vanessa, this is going to be your directorial debut at Moxie. And there seem to be quite a few challenges in this play. One thing I noticed is that it involves an orangutan. And I'm curious, how is that going to play out on stage? First of all, our actor is amazing in this. She's so warm and she's so open and it's it's an amazing experience. First of all, the orangutan, I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> so it, it, it's a way to show audience members communication and compassion, how needs are just sometimes just not met and how we, we, how we have to open up our minds to different types of communication. I that I feel that that's what Wookie represents in in the show. Uh, the orangutan ties directly to to how people sometimes on the spectrum communicate in different ways. But that doesn't mean that they're not communicating correctly. But in our society, we have created these norms of this is what communication looks like and this is how you communicate. And sometimes I find working in the autism community that the, the, our society is trying to change the way someone communicates <laughs> to, uh, to fit the social norm. And that's where uh, I find that people on the spectrum can get frustrated because they're just communicating in a different way, but they're not being totally heard. So I think it, it, it's symbolic of sometimes the challenges that people in the, the autism community face when they feel like they are expressing just in a different way. And not only that, it also like kind of ripples out to not just people who are neurodiverse or people on the spectrum, but it also ripples on to like people who have have different language, um, people who are deaf, people, you know, all sorts of, of, of ripple effects that happen from that. But yeah, and also I think it, it shows how just shifting a little bit can help communicate. Just opening your mind up to something different can help us communicate with each other. It illustrates how we all felt during the pandemic of like, we're not wired to be alone. We're not wired to feel isolated. And what does that do when you feel like you don't have a community, when you don't feel like you're seen or heard or, or valued, or you're afraid to speak up? And so I think that the play is really special because it, it shows the importance, and especially in the autism community, there's this um, false idea that people with autism are, are people who don't want to be social, and that's absolutely not true. They want to be social just like any neurotypical person wants to feel accepted in a community. So we have to enter their world and figure out how to tap into their expression. Well, I want to thank both of you very much for talking about Moxie's new play, Sapiens. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Thanks for having us. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Samantha Jin and Vanessa Duran. Moxie Theatre presents Sapiens February 3rd through the 20th. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, 
and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.